Belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for September 4th, 2022 is called, Does the Cheese Really Stand Alone? The speaker is Laura Holland. It was recorded on Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Good morning. Um, Jeff has already welcomed us, but my name is Laura Holland, and I'm a member of the teaching team here, and I'm really grateful for all of you that are here today, everyone that is watching on the live stream or listening via the podcast. So, as the school year has started, I don't know about anyone else, but my family now spends a lot of time in the car like a lot of time in the car. And so one of my kids' favorite activities while we are driving is to sing. And the song, The Farmer in the Dell, more frequently called the song about cheese or my personal favorite, The Farmer's Name is Dell. Um, yeah, has become one of their favorites. Yeah, The Cheese Stands Alone is where we just started. Listen to this part. Okay, so it typically starts though following the kind of the old school formula, right? So the farmer takes a wife, the wife takes a child, but then they go off the rails. Then they're taking a fish, they're taking a dinosaur, they're taking a car, but inevitably, and this was not planned, she just proved my point, inevitably the cheese stands alone. That poor cheese is always alone. I clearly have too much thinking time in the car, because I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about this cheese. And, like, it's really sad. It's really sad because the cheese is always in the same environment as these other interconnected pairs, this linkage that has formed, and yet it stands alone. It's by itself. I was talking to Tim about this, and I was saying it's so sad because the cheese is always on the outside. And he was like, no, Laura, if you remember preschool, it's worse than that. The cheese isn't on the outside. It's in the middle. It's in the middle, surrounded by people, reminded that it stands alone. And I think the part of the reason that I've psychoanalyzed the cheese as much as I have is because I actually relate a bit to it. Yes. Oh, okay. Charlie will um, give us some extra tidbits on this song after the message. But I psychoanalyze it because I recognize it. There have been many instances in my life where I have felt like the odd one out. When I was deployed, I was one of three women on the entire part of the base where I was and the only civilian. When I was a small groups pastor, I used to go to conferences a lot and it was very common for me to be one of the only women, one of the only millennials, and one of the only people working in an urban environment. So as the Venn diagram segment started to be made, inevitably I felt cut out or that I stood alone like that cheese. So talking to friends though, and random scrolling through Facebook and other social media, leads me to believe that this is not a unique feeling that I have. This is not something that only I think about. And if we stick with this metaphor just a little bit longer, it's one thing to feel like 
cheese in a world of connections who just hasn't connected yet. It's another thing to be in a world that doesn't like cheese or that doesn't understand cheese. That would just really appreciate it if this cheese could just be a dinosaur or a fish or a car, just something that makes my life easier. So what do we do then? Where's God in that reality? And where do we find hope there? Last week, John started our series on the Petron Letters by teaching on the book of Jude. So this one chapter book is based on hope intended for new Christians who were culturally Jewish. Leaning into the shared background, Jude encourages his first hearers to relax because everything's going to be okay. He tells them to rest. Everything is coming together. Open your hearts. Love is on the way. And if you've listened to the message, you'll remember that relax, rest, and love is followed by a call to fight with everything in you for the faith. On the surface, this sounds contradictory, but as John explained, this overarching message to rest and relax and love was a reminder of our identity. And it was a reminder of the hope that we have in Christ, even through the effort required to deal with the trials and very real issues of life that we will encounter. This week, we turn to 1 Peter, starting with chapter 1. And as we'll see, the theme of grounded hopefulness continues. This grounded hopefulness is a hopefulness that perseveres despite, maybe even because of, an acknowledgement of reality, not because of ignorance or disregarding of it. So the, the hopeful message remains, but the audience here is different. Where Jude was intended for new Christians who were culturally Jewish, First Peter was written to Gentiles who were recent Christian converts. More specifically, they were mostly Gentiles who had recently abandoned an idol cult known for debauchery. And though they have abandoned this cult and have radically changed their lifestyles, they are still living among friends and family who continue to practice the religion they've recently come out of. Not only that, they are still living within a culture that is designed for where they came out of. First Peter is a practical message for those living in acute conflict with those closest to them, geographically and relationally. Those dealing with questionably motivated government officials, hostile social pressure, and those living with a fear of physical violence. This left the group that was originally hearing this anxious. They were fearful. They were ashamed and grief-stricken. And some of them even considered leaving the Christian faith faith altogether just to make it stop. I mean, I read through this and I was like, oh, if only stories and scriptures were relevant for today, right? Like, I feel like we can relate to this. And First Peter is written to show this group, the group of new Christians in this place where they don't quite belong, grace. And it is written to remind them of God's goodness that their identity is in Christ. Not only that, but they have a lived history and a community that they've been grafted into. It provides them guidance also on how to live hopefully right where 
they are. The original hearers were persecuted Christians, which isn't our reality. But the idea of experiencing discomfort or feeling out of step, that is something that we probably can relate to. It might resonate very deeply with some of us. We might feel like we are surrounded and that we're just the lonely cheese. So as I read through 1 Peter 1 today, I encourage you to listen for examples of grounded hopefulness. Listen for examples of practical ways to live amongst those who are different, those with whom we are in conflict, and those who frankly just make our lives a little harder. So 1 Peter 1. From Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those temporarily residing abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, the province of Asia, and Bithynia, those are who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by being set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with Jesus Christ's blood. May grace and peace be yours in full measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he gave us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that is into an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is reserved in heaven for you who by God's power are protected through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This brings you great joy although you may have to suffer for a short time in various trials. Such trials show the proven character of your faith, which is much more valuable than gold. Gold that is tested by fire, even though it is passing away, and will bring praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You have not seen him, but you love him. You do not see him now, but you believe in him. And so you rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy because you are attaining the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who predicted the grace that would come to you searched and investigated carefully. They probed into what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified beforehand about the sufferings appointed for Christ and his subsequent glory. They were shown that they were serving not themselves but you in regard to the things now announced to you through those who proclaimed the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things angels long to catch a glimpse of. Therefore, get your minds ready for action by being fully sober and set your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Like obedient children, do not comply with the evil urges you used to follow in your ignorance. But, like the Holy Spirit who called you, become holy yourselves in all of your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, live out the time of your temporary residence here in reverence. You know that from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, you were ransomed, not by perishable things like silver or gold, but by precious blood like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb, namely Christ. He was foretold before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for your sake. Through him, you now trust in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 
You have purified your souls by obeying the truth in order to show sincere mutual love. So love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You have been born anew, not from perishable, but from imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like... Earlier this week, Ellen shared a funny general outline of Pauline letters that said they could all be summed up as saying, Grace, I thank God for you. Hold fast to the gospel. For the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. Timothy says hi. So if we applied this outline style to the Petrin letters, we'd be looking at something pretty similar. Here we might see grace. I see you and what you're going through. Remember that God is awesome and that your identity is in him. Hold fast to the gospel. For the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. Yes. If we're to summarize 1 Peter 1 specifically by putting it back into the terms of our opening metaphor, we're not getting away from that cheese yet. You could say, you cheese who feels as though you stand alone, take heart. Not only are you not alone now on your journey, but you've been grafted into and are part of a legacy whose story is filled with reminders that their strength is rooted in their identity in Christ an identity that you now have too. This identity ensures that you're never truly standing alone. And it provides a foundation of strength to earnestly love all others, even those who have shunned you. Because you are loved with an enduring love. And this love has given you a new life and a new way of looking at life. In our teaching team this week, there were a few themes that we kept circling around while we were discussing this chapter. We discussed the power of identity and knowing that you've been named, that you've been welcomed in, and at the same time, have something new to live into and to live up to. We talked about the hopefulness that stems from this message that you're doing the best you can with what you have and what you know now. As Betty said it, it's a process and you're just going through it. But we are being trusted with something more and with something greater. We discussed the mercy that was shown in the reminders that this identity was freely given. It didn't need to be earned and any effort shown was to be an outpouring in response to this freely received love. Leah called our attention to the use of Isaiah 40 at the end of the chapter, where we're reminded that grass withers and flowers fall off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this led us to discuss God's sustaining love. But the bulk of our time was spent discussing what it looks like practically in real life terms to show sincere mutual love in a place where we're uncomfortable or uneasy, we feel like we don't quite belong. As I've already alluded to, or maybe outright stated, our experience of persecution as Christians in the United States does not align as a one-to-one -one parallel lived reality to the original hearers of this message. They were treated as outsiders and aggressively othered because of their Christian faith. In the United States, especially in the South, 
We live in a place where Christianity is supported, it's encouraged, and it's socially acceptable. So that specific instance is not our experience. But if we are to replace the specific language of persecution with this broader idea of unease or discomfort, or just a feeling of untethered anti-belonging, this is something that we can relate to. And if we're speaking about discomfort, this makes me wonder, what does that actually mean in this scenario? What things should make us uncomfortable? I like the way that John explained it in our meeting, where he said that we all probably know what it's like, never fully relating to or being comfortable within a culture, or of never feeling at home. The idea of being sojourners is a central part of our Christian faith, and we hear often of the challenge to be in the world, but not of the world. John went on to say, there is an alienation we'll all feel as we identify more with Jesus. The more we identify with Jesus in our character, in our thinking, in our ways, in our interactions, the more we identify with Jesus, the more alienated we are likely to feel. Because as people called away from temptations of this world, there will be an inevitable disconnect with what we used to see as necessary. Our persecution is not the same but it is nevertheless real. When we follow Jesus, we're called to leave things that are comfortable and secure, and this is what frees us to love. This is what provides the connection to loving others earnestly. So if we're following this, the discomfort is the purification. So this passage tells us that, yes, we do have to put up with aggravations of life, but that like pure gold put in a fire comes out proven to be pure. Genuine faith put through the suffering comes out proven to be genuine. This refining fire of daily life is not going to be comfortable and it will make us uneasy at times, but as sojourners or travelers, we have hope. This message of hope in the journey is one that we see a lot of other places in scripture too. And if we look at some of those, we can get even more specific ideas of how to respond through this discomfort. The one that we're going to narrow in on today is Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 is a well-known chapter, specifically because of the wide application and ownership, specifically of verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and give you a future. But have we ever asked, who is the you that the Lord was originally declaring this to? If you haven't, let me share. Jeremiah 29 was a letter to exiles who had been imprisoned and oppressed by King Nebuchadnezzar, who took them from Jerusalem, their home that he had just destroyed, took them from Jerusalem to Babylon, where he used them in his building campaigns to transform Babylon into the new great power of the ancient Near East. So in other words, this letter was written to a people who were living among those and under a system for those who believed differently than they did and saw them as other. In his letter, Jeremiah gives clear instructions to the exiles on how to act in this place where they don't belong. 
he tells them to build houses and settle down, to plant gardens and eat what they produce, work to see that the city enjoys peace and prosperity, pray to the Lord for it, for as it prospers, you will prosper. He's telling them to seek to make the place where you found yourself better. And not just better in a way that suits or benefits you, but better in a way that allows all in the city to enjoy peace and prosperity. If I'm honest, this would not be my natural inclination of how to respond were I in this situation. Probably not even begrudgingly. Because these instructions to build and to plant encourage an investment that will far outlast those who are doing the building and the planting, possibly into a future that these exiles are clinging to as being different than what they're experiencing now. So with that, instead of hearing this as a message of hope, it can almost feel more like a message of giving up. But having the benefit of knowing how their particular story ends, that should give us hope. Because we can see that a rooted investment in where we live now, with the people that live around us now, regardless of whether or not they believe what we believe, or even support us in what we believe, this investment is worthwhile and it is holy. So if we're to apply the spirit of this instruction to our lives, what does it look like for us to seek peace and prosperity for Northwest Arkansas? What should we be doing and how should we be interacting with others? With whom should we be interacting? What checks are added to our spirit? If we honor the part of the instruction that tells us to seek the prosperity of the city, and by extension, the betterment for those within the city, not just ourselves. And what does it look like to do this while working under systems that do not benefit us and that were not created to bring about peace or betterment or widespread prosperity? Are we asking what better truly looks like for all of those around us? Or are we asking what it looks like for there to be peace for all? These are the kinds of questions that I really hope you leave here today asking. Because even more than giving clear instructions, passages like this set us up and encourage us to ask better questions, encourage us to ask different questions, and to truly examine what we're doing now and how we're currently operating in the world. If you're like me, though, you might be listening and saying, great, I will ask these questions, but how do I get to a place where I can act like I've been called to? This sounds a little tough. So going back to 1 Peter 1, specifically verse 22, it tells us, you have purified your souls. That's the proving that comes through the struggle by obeying the truth. We've struggled because we've held fast to the gospel in order to show sincere mutual love. So love one another earnestly from a pure heart. All right, sincere mutual love that is earnestly from a pure heart, what does that actually mean? This is not how we typically speak. Eugene Peterson's The Message phrases it 
Love one another as if your lives depended on it. That makes a little more sense. Betty pointed out that sincere mutual love will be love that transforms both parties, even if the level of input isn't balanced. Think about that a little bit. So we're called to love with a transformative love, an active love, to love as if our lives depended on it. And taking it one step further, as John put it, I love you, but I don't want what you got. I'm not loving you to fit into your system. Or in other words, I'm not loving you for personal gain. That is not my motivation. My motivation is different. And we get to this point by going through the struggle. Sorry that that's the message. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if it was, we get to this point by completely avoiding everything that's hard. But we get to this point by going through the struggle. This is how we are refined. And this comes because of our identity in Christ. But it is withstood because of our identity in Christ. Because by his great mercy, we have been given a new birth into a living hope. So this letter is a message of grounded hope. We have a living hope that sustains us through our trials, and we have the deep joy of our salvation. We've been named and we've been called, and each of us is a sojourner. We are all travelers in this world, but make no mistake. Although we are travelers and have been promised a future hope, we have not been instructed to hold on, close our eyes, and just trust that one day we'll be in heaven and this will all have been worth it. No. We are told to work for the good of our city. We're told to work for peace and prosperity for all. We're told to love like our lives depended on it, with a love that is purified by the very struggle that makes it hard. We pray each week for thy kingdom to come. This shows us what it can look like. This shows us what it takes to get there, and it encourages us to partner in that effort. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.